Well, good morning. Please be seated. Oftentimes, one of the critiques that Christianity receives is that Christianity is an exclusive religion. And so Christians are viewed as being narrow or judgmental, or churches are viewed as being sort of these holier-than-thou clubs that just look down on everybody else. You know, all these neighbors out here, just terrible, awful people. We've got it all figured out here. We're in the right. Churches are a lot like that scene from Mean Girls. You can't sit with us. And certainly, many people in the name of Christianity have behaved that way throughout the centuries. But at its essence, Christianity is the most inclusive religion in the world. The Bible is replete with open invitations to anyone and to everyone to come to God. Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All, any, whoever. Of course, the most famous verse in the Bible reminds us of this truth. John 3.16 tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And it's not just the New Testament and the coming of Jesus that reveals to us a God who cares for the world an invitational God. No, you can see this in the Old Testament as well. The prophet Isaiah famously says in Isaiah 55 verse 1, as he's speaking on behalf of the Lord, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. This is an open invitation doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you have the resources or not. Just come, come, come. This is what we see in Scripture. And here in Psalm 34, David is inviting all who would listen to him to taste and see the goodness of the Lord. Far from being exclusive, Christianity is inclusive. It is a religion for the world. It doesn't matter where you were born. It doesn't matter what language you speak. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. It doesn't matter how old or how young you are, how educated or uneducated you are. It doesn't matter how much money you have in the bank or how few resources you have. None of that matters. God looks at you and you are the object of his love and he invites you to come to him and find life. For those of us who are already Christians here this morning, our call to action, so to speak, from Psalm 34 is going to be continue delighting yourself in the goodness of God. For those who perhaps have joined us this morning and you're not a Christian, you've never put your faith in Jesus, first of all, we're thankful that you're here. We're really, really blessed that you've come and you've joined us in our worship this morning. But today is an invitation to experience God's goodness for yourself. Now, the first thing that we have to get into our heads today, if we're going to understand and, and receive the message of Psalm 34, is we have to get into our heads the idea of the goodness of God. Ever since the so-called enlightenment, the doctrine of God's goodness has fallen on hard times in Western civilization. If David Hume could be credited with making belief in God irrational, 
It was Nietzsche who's responsible for popularizing the idea that the God of the Bible is immoral. In the hands of Nietzsche, Christianity is not just wrong, it's actually bad, it's actually evil. And the commands of God that come to us through the scriptures are nothing more than tools in the hands of the powerful to continue to oppress other people. Now, of course, none of the Jewish sages of the Old Testament nor the Christian saints of the New Testament would have given Nietzsche's view of God a second thought. For them, belief in God's goodness was not just theoretical, meaning that it wasn't just an idea that they put together by stringing together some random passages from the Bible. No, for the authors of the Bible, the idea that God was good was a conclusion that they arrived at through their own experience. They themselves had tasted and seen that God was good to them. And so nobody could convince them otherwise. And with all the confidence in the world, they could look at every single person and they could say, come and you taste and see that the Lord is good and you'll find that he is. For the people of God in both the Old Testament and the New the surest way to find the secret to life, the surest way to experience a life of true flourishing was in relationship with God and following his good commands. And here in Psalm chapter 34, David himself, the great poet of Israel, invites anyone and everyone to experience the good life. Well, let's get into this text, beginning with the superscription or the title there that Kendra read for us. It says, of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. Now, this superscription to Psalm 34 locates the composition of this psalm in the history of 1 Samuel chapter 21, where David, as a young man, has already been told by God that he's going to be king of Israel, but Saul is the current king. And David is fleeing from Saul. He's on the run from Saul because Saul is trying to kill him. He is so terrified for his life that he actually crosses over into enemy territory looking for safe haven there. And he goes to a man named Achish, who is the king of Gath. Now, these were the Philistines. These were Israel's enemies. And David goes there seeking refuge. Now, I know in the superscription, it says that he went before Abimelech. But in 1 Samuel 21, the king of Gath is Achish. Now, Abimelech means literally father of the king. And a lot of scholars think that Abimelech is a royal title for the kings of Gath. Much like Pharaoh is a royal title for all of the kings of Egypt. So Achish or Abimelech is who's being referred to here in this superscription. In the story, as David goes to Achish, Achish's servants recognize David and they say, hold on, isn't that David? Isn't that the guy who killed Goliath, our champion? Isn't that the guy that they write all of Saul's diss tracks about? Right, they sing these songs about Saul and they say, well, Saul killed thousands, but David killed tens of thousands. Of who? Of them, the Philistines. That's who these songs are about. And so the servants of this king Achish are like, listen, this man is not safe to keep around. He's dangerous. He's a lethal 
warrior. And David realizes his predicament and he begins to freak out. He realizes this is very risky for me to be in Gath. And so he decides that he's going to act crazy. And he plays the madman. And he starts drooling down his beard. He starts scribbling on the gates of the city. So that way Abimelech or Achish is going to think that he's just crazy. And that kind of makes sense because David's hoping, he's kind of banking on this this thought that Achish will look at him and go, the only explanation for why the giant slayer of Israel would come into my kingdom is because he's totally out of his mind. And it works. Achish buys it and he basically says to his servants, don't I have enough crazy loonies in my own kingdom? Do I really need one more? Get this guy out of my kingdom. And David is spared from a certain death. And it's on the heels of that moment that Psalm 34 is composed. David recognized the danger that he put himself in. He calls out to the Lord. He devises that plan. God delivers him and he writes Psalm 34 in response to it. David begins in the first half of the Psalm praising God. You can look at verses 1 through 10 and sort of summarize that portion of Psalm 34 with the idea that David is praising God for his goodness. That's what he's going to do in the first half of this psalm. In the first three verses, we see David's commitment to praise. He makes this declaration that he will bless, he will praise the Lord. That's his commitment. Look again at verse 1. David begins this beautiful poem by saying, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Now, of course, most Christians praise the Lord or bless the Lord with great ease when things are going well in their lives. And so of note is the little expression that David puts here, at all times. David is committed to praising the Lord, to blessing the name of his God at all times. And again, in the historical context here, the times that David is living in are still very dangerous. Sure, he might have been delivered from Achish, but he's still on the run from Saul. In 1 Samuel 21, he flees from Gath and then he goes to a cave and he's still on the run. So his life at this moment when he's praying this prayer is far from perfect. Things are still looking very dangerous and very precarious for him. Like many Afghanis right now, David is being hunted down by those in power in his nation. And yet, while he's on the run, while his life is in danger, he can still find the resources spiritually to say, I am choosing to praise the Lord. God will be blessed on my lips. In verse 2, he shifts it a little bit into the idea of boasting. He says, I'm going to do a little bit of boasting now. And interestingly, in verse 2, the humble are going to hear him start boasting. And he says that they'll be glad. They're going to be glad. Now, when you think about it, humble people don't enjoy being around boastful people. If you're a humble person, people who are really cocky and arrogant are bothersome to you. It's irritating. These me monsters, these people who are all about themselves and They think that they've got it all together and they're proud. That usually repels humble people. But David here says, I'm going to start boasting and humble people are going to enjoy that. (laughs) They're going to want to be around me. 
Well, the key to it is that David says that he's not boasting in himself. That's what becomes irritating for most of us when you're around an arrogant person is it's all about them. David's not boasting in that sense. David says, I'm going to make my boast in the Lord. That's actually, that's actually a, a picture of what humility looks like. David is saying, I'm not making this about me. I, I'm not blessed because of my own effort. I haven't been delivered from Achish because of my own effort. I am making my boast in the Lord. I'm dependent on him. I'm going to give him all the glory, all the honor, all the praise. That's actually the posture of humility. It's not about him. It's about the Lord. And so humble people are going to rally around somebody who's demonstrating humility like that. David is making it all about the Lord. And the humble are hearing his boast in the Lord and they are made glad. And so in verse 3, David then invites the humble to join with him in praising the Lord. So again, in these first three verses, we see David's commitment to praise. He's going to praise the Lord at all times. In the next few verses, we see David's cause for praise. The reason why David is so committed to praising his God. Look at verse 4. David says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Now, David, in this episode, was very, very afraid. We see that in verse 4. And of course, he was very afraid. His life was in danger. And yet, David says, look, I called on my God, and he delivered me. He heard my cry, and he responded, and he delivered me from Achish. And so far, he's delivering me from the hands of Saul as well. Now, David, again, is on the run here. And he's saying that God delivered him. He had prayed and God answered him. And this shows us that when we call on God for deliverance, when we pray to our God, that does not preclude working toward one's own rescue. David prayed to God and he's crediting God with delivering him. But David also conceived a plan. I'm going to act like a madman. And God used that. God used that plan that David had to deliver him. And so for us, oftentimes Christians can think that all we need to do is just pray and then just sit back and wait and do nothing. But so many times in the scriptures, we see that as we pray and we ask God for things, we also ought to be people who are working for the answers that we want. So you pray for the job and you submit the application. You don't just sit back and say, God, give me work and wonder why nobody's knocking on your front door offering you jobs right? You pray for a godly woman and you ask her out, okay? You don't just, God, give me that beautiful woman. Give me an amazing spouse and then just sit there. You have to do something. You don't just pray that God saves your coworker. You pray and you share the gospel. I once heard a preacher say, when you pray for something, the first thing you should do is explore how God might want you to be part of the answer. I love that idea. You're saying, God, I, I need this, or I, I want this. God, would you do this thing? And then you say, hmm, 
God, is there a way in which you might want me to participate in the very thing that I'm asking for? Now, what I love here is that when God did step in and God delivered David, it completely transformed his demeanor. We see that there in verse 5. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. So David's demeanor went from being fearful and playing the madman to all of a sudden being radiant and being full of life and vigor. God's deliverance completely transformed how he felt, even how he looked. In verse 6, David calls himself this poor man. And this was not just him being humble. This was pretty accurate for David at this point in his life. What earthly resources did he have? He was on the run, running for his life. He didn't have anything at his disposal. He had nothing in and of himself to deliver himself from Saul, the king of Israel. But what David did and what all of us ought to constantly do is David looked to resources outside of himself. Namely, David looked to the infinite resources of God himself. And he realized, even though I don't have anything available in my own hand to deliver myself, I know that God can do anything. I know that God can frustrate the plans of King Saul. I know that God can deliver me from his hand. And so he reaches out to the Lord and God answers him. And David sees himself and not just himself, but all those who fear God in verse 7 as being actually divinely protected. David in verse 7 talks about how the angel of the Lord is encamped around those who fear him. What a beautiful picture. And again, I can't help but think of our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. These Christians, and I can't help think of the fact that in a very literal sense, they're surrounded by hostile people who hate them and who want nothing more than to see them exterminated from the earth. And what a beautiful promise Promise in verse 4, that for those who fear the true God, those who fear the Lord Jesus Christ, that the angel of the Lord, who oftentimes in the Old Testament is a picture of God himself, many scholars think a theophany it's, or a Christophany, it's Christ in the Old Testament, that the angel of the Lord God himself is actually encamped around his people, protecting them. And David is encouraged by this. David takes heart here. As we've seen so many times in the Psalter, the cause for praising God is always what God has done for his people. David is saying, look, I will praise the Lord no matter what's going on in my life because I can look and see what God has done for me. Again, this is David's experience. He had been delivered over and over and over again by the Lord in his life. And so for us as Christians, the application is always so obvious for us. If if you want to look at the ultimate cause for why we should be a people who can praise God no matter what's going on in our life, we just have to look at the deliverance that God has provided for us. 2,000 years ago, God secured our eternal deliverance. Through Christ, God solved your greatest need. Through Christ, every wrong thing you've ever done and all the wrong things you're still going to do in your future are completely and permanently forgiven. And through Christ, not only is your sin dealt with, but the consequence of your sin, which is death, has been solved as well because Christ conquered the grave. 
And so family, no matter what you're going through, our hope is always located in the work of Christ on our behalf. And because of what Christ has done for us, we always have great reason and great cause to praise the Lord. Well, this brings us now to verses 8 through 10, where David now supplies a call to faith. Again, this is this invitation, this beautiful invitation in Psalm 34. David says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Now, guys, this is more than just a declaration of God's goodness. Verse 8 is a call to others to experience his goodness firsthand. I love the language here. David says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. He wants them to experience this. This is a call to faith. And that's further confirmed by the second part of the verse where David says, blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. That phrase, take refuge, is stock language in the Psalter for put your faith in the Lord. David is saying, come, taste and see. Come, trust in the Lord. Take refuge in him. Put your faith in him. Experience the goodness of my God. Now notice that David's call to faith flows out of his own personal testimony. When David sought God, God answered. God proved himself to be faithful and to be mighty and to be a deliverer for David. And because of that, David can now confidently invite other people to put their faith in God because David knows when they do, God's going to do the same for them. God's going to show up for them. God's going to prove to be a savior and a deliverer for them as well. You can only promise others that something tastes good if you yourself have tasted of it, right? I can't walk into a restaurant and say, oh my gosh, this meal is amazing unless I've tasted it myself. You have to know, you have to experience it yourself. Now, I think that one of the reasons that so many Christians' efforts in evangelism are weak and they don't see a lot of fruit is because although they share the gospel with accuracy, they don't share it with conviction. What I mean is that, sure, they can, they can walk you through the Romans road, or they can explain the logic of the gospel from A to Z, and they can do that accurately. But when they talk about the gospel or they share the gospel with other people, it's not flowing out of, place, out of a place of deep conviction. It's not flowing out of an obvious depth of personal experience that they've experienced God, that they've seen God show up in their life many times before, and therefore they're coming to others and saying, trust me, if you taste and see of the God that I've tasted and seen of, you will not be disappointed. But this is the place that David's in. Look at, look at verse 8. He ends it with an exclamation point. He's like, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. He's saying this with confidence. He's saying this with conviction. He believes this at the core of his being because, again, this is not just theory for David. This is not just David being a Bible scholar and saying, well, I, I have 
I have a corner on truth here. This is David saying, I have walked with Yahweh, the Lord, since I was a little boy. And God was with me when I was tending the sheep. And God was with me on that battlefield when I slew that giant named Goliath. And God has been with me in the palace when Saul tried to spear me to a wall. And God has been with me as I was on the run. And God has been good. And God has delivered me. And now I know at the depth of my being, at the core of who I am, that this is not just theoretical. God is real and he's mighty and he shows up for his people. Would you come, become a member of God's family and you yourself can experience the goodness of the Lord? From what I can tell, the most effective evangelists are the most affected, with an A, Christians. What I mean by that, is they're not necessarily the brightest. They're, they're certainly not always seminary educated. They're certainly not always those who are behind the pulpit. The most effective evangelists that I can see are always the most affected Christians. It's those who have had such a radical encounter and experience with Jesus that as they tell other people about their faith, it's just obvious that they believe this thing. And that's powerful. And that's what we find with David here. This is just flowing out of his own personal experience. In verses 9 and 10, David just reinforces his basic point, which is this, that looking to the Lord leads to experiencing God's goodness. He switches terminology here. He uses the word or the expression, the fear of the Lord. Now, this is common language among the Israelites. This is the attitude in which spiritual life can develop the blessed person for David, the one who's going to experience the goodness of the Lord is the person who fears the Lord. The person whose basic posture of heart is that they are in awe of God, they revere God, they fear God. Or to put it differently, it's the person who gives God his rightful place as the creator of all things. And it's the person who locates themselves properly as a creature and not the creator, who is 100% dependent on the Lord. That's what it looks like to fear the Lord. You are a person who says, I get it. I know who you are. You're the creator. You're the sustainer. And I'm a creature. I'm not in control. You are. And therefore, I surrender all to you. David says, look, people like that, people who posture themselves properly before the Lord, they will have no lack. None. Their God will show up. Their God will deliver them. He drives the point home with this picture of young lions. This is very strategic. Because David wants to say, look, let me go to the animal kingdom to prove my point. He says, if you think about it, young lions are the apex predators. Right? Lions are the kings of the jungle, of course. Lions are not walking around wondering if they are going to be able to feed themselves. They just look out and they say, we can defeat anybody we want. We can get anything we want. So lions are apex predators. And a young lion is the top of the food chain. This isn't the old, worn out, has-been lion. This is like the young, in-their-prime lion who walks around among the animal kingdom and is in control of everything. And David says, listen, even the young lions at times suffer lack and want. 
Even the young lions at times, even though they are the kings, even though they're the strongest, even they struggle from time to time to get their needs met. And he says, but those who trust in the Lord, those who fear the Lord will never, ever suffer lack and want. And I love that because I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't look at myself and think I'm a young lion. I don't look at myself and think I'm the smartest, the cleverest. The, I don't feel that way about myself. I, I look at myself and I think, man, but for the grace of God, things are going to go really, really badly for me. I, maybe I won't be able to provide for my family 10 years from now. I can't control every outcome of my life, but that's okay. I don't have to be, I don't have to have all the resources myself. I don't have to be the young lion that dominates everybody else and gets it done. I just have to be dependent on God. Anybody can do that. You don't have to have it all together. You don't have to be a young lion. You can just be a person who says, Lord, I need you and I'm going to trust you and God will make sure that you never in your life suffer lack. He'll take care of his people. What an invitation. If you look to the Lord, you will lack no good thing. God will take care of you. He'll make sure of it. The second half of the psalm shifts gears. David goes from praising the Lord in the first half to now teaching others of God's goodness in the second half in verses 11 through 22. Look at verse 11. David shifts gears here. And he says in verse 11, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good and seek peace and pursue it. Now there's an obvious shift at this point of the psalm. It really takes on sort of classic Hebrew wisdom uh, literature here. That, that's the, the posture of it at this point. And David now assumes the role of the teacher. And he calls the class into session. He says, hey, kids, circle up, sit down on your little rugs or your little pillows. I'm going to teach you some things. And he wants to teach the people what it looks like to fear the Lord. Because again, as I've been talking about, this is for David... This is the way to living the good life, is to be a person who fears the Lord. In verse 12, he rhetorically says, like, who wants to have a blessed life? Who wants to absolutely flourish in life? Of course, every one of his students that are sitting before him would say, I, I'd like that, me, sign me up for that. And he says, great, here's how you do it. Live a life that embodies the fear of the Lord. Live that kind of a life. He unpacks what that life looks like in very generic terms in verses 13 and 14. And so there we see the substance of the good life in verses 13 and 14. Essentially, it's a three-part instruction. This is not exhaustive. It's just illustrative of what a life of fearing the, the Lord looks like. But there's three parts to it. He says, speak truth. He says, do good. And he says, seek peace. Speak truth, do good, and seek peace. Again, in other words, he's saying live a life that embodies the fear of the Lord. So he starts with speaking truth. In the Bible, we see that our words really matter. They really matter to God because, 
According to Jesus, the words that you speak reveal what is actually going on in your heart. Your words, your words betray you. Your words give away what's going on in your heart. Jesus says this in Luke chapter 6, verse 43. He says, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. So Jesus is saying, look, whatever you see at the root, your heart, you will see in the fruit. What you say reveals the content of your heart. So our words are deeply profound. And not only are they important because they reveal what's true about us, but our words really matter because they're powerful. In the Old Testament, we read that uh, life and death are in the power of the tongue. Your words really, really matter, right? As children were taught, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And you think, okay, that's cool. I really like that on the, pra- the playground. But as you get older, you realize that it's actually totally backward, right? Some of the things that have hurt you the most in your life were not being punched in the nose. It was something that somebody said about you that you can't shake. It was something that somebody said to somebody else that destroyed your reputation. It's words that tear people to pieces. And so our words really matter. And so God cares about our speech. And for the person who truly fears the Lord, for the person who lives as if God is real and present, David says, you will speak truthfully and lovingly. The second thing there is do good. Do good. Christianity is not just about what we believe. It's also about how we behave. Yes, the most important thing is what we believe or who we believe in, but that always impacts how we live and how we behave. We cannot claim to love God if we don't also love people. And so the person who trusts God, the person who fears the Lord, is the person who seeks to obey God and obey his commandments. It's the person who seeks to love their neighbor as they love themselves. And finally, David says that what the good life looks like, what a life of fearing the Lord looks like, is being a person who seeks peace. And what a better world we'd live in if everyone was committed to seeking peace. But this is the ethic of the kingdom of God. This is the countercultural thing that we can offer to the world, is that we as Christians can embody peace, that we could be peacemakers. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Now notice that peace does not come naturally. Thus we must seek peace, David writes, and pursue it. It doesn't come naturally to you. Look at the world that we live in. People naturally are selfish. They naturally are willing to oppress and take advantage and exploit other people to get ahead. And yet Jesus says that those who are children of God are uh, those who are peacemakers. And David says that we must seek peace and pursue it. If we trust and fear God, we don't have to fight against people. If we trust and fear God, we can have thick skin because we don't live for people's acceptance. We're already accepted by God. And we don't need to take revenge because vengeance belongs to our Lord. David himself modeled this. 
Some of you know his, his story, that as he was on the run from Saul on two different occasions, he could have killed his great enemy. He could have killed Saul, and yet he didn't. Instead, he chose to be a peacemaker and to trust the Lord. And guess what? God blessed him for it. And so David knows firsthand what it means to be a peacemaker. So that's the substance of the good life. You fear the Lord. You speak truth. You seek peace. You do good. We see in verses 15 through 20 now, the source of the good life. Look again at verse 15. David says in verse 15, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Living a life that embodies the fear of the Lord doesn't lead to the good life by chance. It leads to the good life because God ensures it. Because God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We read in these verses that God's all-seeing eyes are taking notice of everything that's going on in the world, of every action that people are taking, good and bad. And we see that God preserves the righteous and he protects the righteous in verse 16. And that God is set against those who do evil. Now, God's attitude toward a person is dependent on their relationship with him. Those who are righteous, meaning those who trust in the Lord like David. For those of us on this side of the cross, it means that those of us who, who have Christ's righteousness in our account because of our faith in him, for people like that, God protects, God delivers, God preserves, God blesses. Now, those who do evil, which is stock language in the Old Testament, for those who have no regard for God, for those who ignore him and just want to do things their own way, we read that God's face is against them, that God is actively opposed to them. Derek Kidner, the Old Testament commentator, calls this the unwelcoming face of God. What a terrifying thought. We so often think of God as, kind of Luke 15 and the, the father there and the story of the prodigal son, and he's just got this unending smile toward us. Well, he does toward his people. But as Derek Kidner points out, those who reject God, those who dismiss God and ignore God, those who are bent on doing evil, for them, they will experience the unwelcoming face of God. It's terrifying. In verses 18 through 20, we're reminded that just because you're a Christian, it doesn't mean that you get a free pass on pain and suffering and hardship in this world. We will be brokenhearted. We will be crushed in spirit. We will have many afflictions. And I know that for many of us here this morning, that's a descriptor of your life right now. Things are not going easy right now. Things are challenging. You're suffering. You're going through hardship. And obviously for many believers around the world, this is descriptive of their experience right now. So as Christians, we don't get a free pass on that, but we do get a promise that God will be with us and that God will deliver us 
through our troubles. Now, significantly, the apostle John takes verse 20 and he applies it to Jesus at the crucifixion. In John 19, 36, John writes these words. He says, for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. And then he quotes verse 20 here. Not one of his bones will be broken. For John and for the other apostles, Jesus is the ultimate example of the truthfulness of Psalm 34. Never was there a more righteous man than Jesus of Nazareth. And never was there a more afflicted man than Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus was perfectly righteous. And Jesus on the cross bore the sins not only of one individual, but he bore the sins of every single person throughout all of human history who would ever put their faith in him. Jesus literally endured hell for his people. Nobody has ever been so afflicted. And yet through all of that, Jesus was not abandoned by his father. Ultimately, the father vindicated him by raising him from the dead. And so you and I, who have put our faith in Jesus and have become children of God, by virtue of that faith, we can live in these promises. That no matter what hardship, no matter what affliction, no matter how crushed you are in spirit right now, God's going to be with you. And God's going to deliver you. And God will see you through. As we get to the close of Psalm 34 and this sermon, verses 21 and 22 point us forward to final outcomes. And so now we see the outcome of the, God, of the good life. Verse 21, David writes, Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Now another translation of verse 21 would be, Evil itself will kill the wicked. Many passages speak to this truth. That, that evil has a boomeranging effect. Many of you are familiar with the, the expression that we get from the Old Testament that your sin will find you out. And so often the way that things work in God's moral universe is that the very evil plans that a person hatches are their own undoing. That your sin comes back and falls on your own head. That your own evil is the very thing that kills the wicked. But the examples of this that happen in people's lives, perhaps examples of this that are going to happen to members of the Taliban in the weeks and months to come, are always only a parable or an earthly picture of a more significant reality. That all sin will ultimately bring about our eternal ruin or what David calls condemnation. That word condemnation is so important, family. That word is related to the same verb in the Old Testament that means make them bear their guilt. To be condemned means that there is no rescue for you. To be condemned means that you yourself have to stand there and receive your own punishment. You're standing before the judge and there is no lawyer that can help you. There's no jury that can acquit you. Your penalty falls on you. And you bear it. That's the language here. And David is saying, and the Bible says, that for those of us, again, who say, forget God. 
I'm not about that. I'm going to do this my own way. I don't need him. You will bear your own guilt. You will be condemned. And so every time we see examples of sin leading to people, people's downfall in earthly existence, it's, me- it's meant to be a picture of that deeper reality. That all sin left undealt with at the cross of Christ is going to mean people are condemned. People are bearing their own guilt. But there's an opposite to that faith that applies to the righteous, that applies to those who trust in the Lord, who fear the Lord. And David points that out. That for those who fear the Lord, for those of us who say, I am trusting in the Lord, he says, none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Not one. If you take refuge in the Lord, you don't bear your own guilt. This is the greatest news in the universe. That there's a solution for your sin problem. Paul fills this out more in Romans 8, 1, where he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is how you can be acquitted. This is how your guilt can be removed and your penalty can be removed if you are in Christ Jesus. When John the Baptist saw Jesus approaching from afar, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist knew that embodied in Jesus of Nazareth was God's solution to mankind's sin problem. That Jesus, the righteous one who never once sinned, would go to the cross voluntarily and on the cross bear the sins of every man, woman, and child throughout all of history who would trust in the Lord. And he did it. And he exhausted the punishment. He exhausted the guilt that we deserve on the cross as darkness covered the land. And when Jesus hung there on that cross, he said, it is finished. You and I will never, ever bear our guilt if we trust in Jesus. The temple veil was torn in two. Access to God was eternally secured for those who have faith in Jesus Christ. And we will never, ever be condemned. And so now we've come full circle. Those who experience the goodness of God, both in the here and the now, and in the life to come, are those whose faith and trust is in the Lord. And family, this is why Christianity is the most inclusive religion in the world. Christianity is a religion for the whole world. Christ is a savior for the entire world. This is not a religion for white people. This is not a religion for Europeans. This is not a religion for Middle Easterners. This is a religion for every single person because there is no qualification here. Those who take refuge in the Lord will not be condemned. And so family, we have constant reason to praise the Lord, to bless the Lord, to magnify the Lord because he has delivered us from our sins. And family, we have the greatest message and we have the hope for the nations. And it's not you and it's not me and it's not Apostles Church. It's Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. And so we must preach Christ and we must share Christ and we must point to Christ. Let's pray.